Welcome to this podcast from Christchurch London. For more information and resources, please go to ChristchurchLondon.org. All better than Jesus and chocolate. Uh, that's, that's basically my sermon done. I, I, I needn't bother. Um, no, it's great to be with you. Uh, this is my second service of the day. I have to say I was slightly tempted just to get lost on the way from the South Service and go and enjoy the sun. But um, uh, no, I am here and I'm glad to be with you. I think that probably was the right choice, particularly since it's my job. But um, <laughs> we are, and, and other reasons as well. Um, we are in the fourth week of a series which we have called Encounters with Jesus. Uh, we think that all of us, uh, all human beings, have particular needs and longings uh, that are universal. We all long for for meaning, purpose, fulfillment, freedom, forgiveness, uh, restoration, various other things. And actually, these are not just modern longings that we have. They are things that people have always longed for. And we think there's a reason why people long for those things. Actually, they are longings that God has put within our hearts. And the claim of the Christian faith is that these longings can be met through relationship with Jesus. And so across this series, we are looking at a number of people who literally encountered Jesus, who met him in the Gospel of John and had their needs met and their lives changed by him. And today we're going to look at a story that comes in John chapter 8. And I should say, actually, if you are following along in a physical Bible, you may find a little footnote there saying that this story doesn't uh, feature in all the original manuscripts of John. If you've got lots of questions about that, do come and speak to me at the end. I'm very happy to talk to you about that. But essentially, um, chances are this story wasn't in the original version of John. John's gospel, but there's no reason for doubting that it really did happen as is recorded here. In fact, most commentators say, although it probably wasn't originally here, it may actually have come from another gospel, perhaps even Luke's gospel, and been put here because there's something of the context of this part of the story coming after John 7 that really sheds a lot of light on the meaning of this story. So what is it that's the context uh, that this story comes in? Well, in John chapter 7, we just read about the Feast of Tabernacles, which is a seven-day feast where the people celebrate uh, God leading them out of Egypt and towards freedom in the Promised Land. And on the seventh day of this feast, Jesus stands up and he declares, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit. If you were here last week, you'll remember that David talked about the promise of living waters, this vibrant, spiritual, eternal life that comes by having the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. And Jesus stands up and he says, if anyone wants that, if anyone wants all their needs and longings met, you can find that in me. I offer living water. And the crowd are divided over this. Some of them hear it and go, that's exactly the guy that we've been waiting for. And they're really excited. Others hear it and think, this guy's blaspheming. We've got to do something about this. And the religious leaders at this point, they start to plot to find a way of arresting Jesus and getting rid of him once and for all. And Nicodemus, who we met on week two in Joe's brilliant sermon in this series, uh, he he stands up for Jesus and he says, no, hang on, the law requires that we give him a fair hearing. And they just silence him and they come up with a plan to catch Jesus in a trap. And the plan is this, uh, starting at verse 53 of, Luke, uh, of John 7. It says, then they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. 
Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. So the setting for this story is in the temple courts. And this was a place where the scribes would often gather and bring their disciples around them. They would sit and they would teach them about the law. And the scribes were the recognized religious experts on the law of Moses. They took various laws, some of whom were, some of which were only like a sentence long, and they interpreted them and expanded them and came up with huge lists of what the laws meant and how you would apply it and what you could and you couldn't do. And the law was so central to the Jewish way of life that they weren't simply theologians or preachers. They were lawyers and ethicists as well. And they would gather here in this setting and people would come and listen to them and they would explain the law to them. And Jesus comes into their turf and sits down and does what they usually did. He gathers this crowd around him, a massive crowd, and Jesus starts teaching them. And it's into this setting, this very public, very uh, full setting, that they bring this woman in order to trap Jesus. And they bring this woman who's been caught in adultery, and they bring her before Jesus in order to pose this legal and theological conundrum for him. And in this passage, I think we see a contrast between uh, the way the scribes treat the woman and treat religion generally and the way that Jesus does. I think we see a contrast between bad religion and good religion, if I can put it like that. The first thing we see is this. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? Now, in one sense, to be fair to them, they are actually saying the right thing. They're asking the right question. Because the law in places like Leviticus 20 and Deuteronomy 22 did prescribe the death penalty for people in this woman's situation. So in one sense, they're right to ask the question. But actually, John tells us they didn't ask it because they really cared about the answer or they wanted to do what was right. Rather, they were using this as an opportunity to condemn Jesus, to have him put in a trap. And the trap was this. If Jesus were to contradict the law and say, no, that's barbaric, let this woman go free, he would be seen as a heretic, overturning the law of Moses. He'd be in trouble with the religious and the Jewish people. On the other hand, if you knew anything at all about Jesus, you'd know that he was a teacher of compassion. And so if he was like, no, let's stone this woman where she stands, like that would seem to go against everything he had taught and modeled to that point. What's more, in AD Six, uh, the Romans took over rule of Judea and they took the rule from uh, the Jewish people and it was given to, the jurisdiction was given to the Roman governor. So actually the evidence suggests that the death penalty was hardly ever, if ever at all, enacted during this period and it would actually be illegal for the Jewish people to do it because the Romans only had the right to do that. So Jesus is put in this position where he is given these two options, neither of which look good. Either overturn the law of Moses, get branded a heretic and and uh, punished by the religious leaders, or stone the woman, uphold the law, which is incredibly unpopular, and also be in trouble with the Roman people. And you can imagine just the glee in the scribes' faces and in their hearts at this moment. They're like, we've got him. They're just thrilled with this incredible, I mean, it is an impressive trap to catch him. And you can imagine the glee as they're looking on, just thinking, we've got him now. There is no way out for Jesus. And all the while, they are proud of themselves. They are completely oblivious to the fact that they are putting this single woman through incredibly traumatic experiences. I mean, they are upholding the law, but in the process, they're becoming monsters. And they are treating this woman with no respect at all. And actually, 
Although they consider themselves the upholders of the law, the way in which they are conducting this whole situation is really unjust. The verse says that it was dawn at this point. Chances are the woman was not caught in the act of adultery at dawn. Chances are she was caught the night before and was kept in prison somewhere maybe. No idea what her fate would be, terrified as a result. She was then brought not into a private trial, a private place where she could be tried justly, but she was brought into the most public place they could find, humiliated, probably no sense of dignity, terrified before this whole load of people gathered to cast judgment upon her. There's this nasty tone of chauvinism to their words. They say this, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. You can almost hear the sneer in the phrase. What's more, actually, the verses they're referring to didn't just talk about condemning one person. They were explicit that both people who had been part of the, the sin, the act of adultery, were to be tried equally. Yet there's no hint of the man anywhere in this passage. It seems that they've let the guy get away with it, and yet they bring the woman before Jesus. So they've created this whole thing in the name of justice that is deeply unjust and unpleasant. The scribes see themselves as the upholders of the law, the keepers of religion, representatives of God. But there's so much about the way in which they do this that is deeply unjust and deeply unpleasant. This is bad religion. This is religion that points at others but is deeply hypocritical. And maybe you hear this and you think, you know what, that's exactly what I hate about religion. Actually, think about the cultural narrative, the ideas that come to mind when people report about or talk about religion. Often people think that religious people are those who like to point at others and condemn others, take away any fun, just impose rules on others, tell people what they can and can't do. We often think about religious people making others feel condemned, maybe not really caring about others' feelings, but using people as pawns to a greater agenda that we have, all the while being riddled with hypocrisy, shouting ever louder at others as a way of covering up the abuses and the scandals within. If you hear that and think, that is why I hate religion, that is what I hate about religion, I agree with you, and I think Jesus would as well. Actually, it really bothers me that those sort of ideas come to mind too quickly, and we could name a whole load of stories that illustrate that type of religion. I don't think that is what Jesus came to establish. I don't think that is what God wants us to think of when we think of Christianity. And I would put it to you, that the problem may not actually be religion itself. And if we were to look at that bad religion and write off God entirely, we would miss out on something wonderful and glorious. The problem may not actually be religion, but rather something that dwells in the hearts of the religious and irreligious alike. Can I have the next slide? I have no slides. Oh, there you go. Wonderful. Um, anyone know who this lady is? Yeah, well done, well done. It was a basic comprehension exercise. Can you read the name? And only, only Ross can read. Round of applause for Ross. <laughs> oh, great, you passed. Next point. Um, no, uh, Justine Sacco. Does anyone know who Justine Sacco is? No one. No one, apart from, yes, the person who's on the screen. Yes, well done, Susie. Um, that's, that's right. In one sense, you should not know who Justine Sacco is. She is a nobody. Like, she's a 30-something-year-old PR woman from New York. She had... 170 Twitter followers, and she would regularly make jokes to them, and they would never like them or retweet them. I can't imagine how depressing that must have been for her, how insecure she must have felt at having so little Twitter interaction. Obviously, I don't have the same problem myself. Um, but she... <laughs> That's embarrassing. 
Uh, but really, if you take one thing away from this talk, uh, do no one from the South has followed me yet. I'm a bit disappointed about that, but there we go. You clearly don't listen to a word I say. Uh, Justine would tweet these jokes that no one would ever like or retweet until December 2013, where she is sitting in Heathrow Airport waiting to board a plane to go and travel to uh, spend Christmas with family in South Africa. And she sends this tweet, going to Africa, hope I don't get AIDS, just kidding, I'm white. Ooh, indeed. Now, Justine thinks this is hilarious. And actually, in interviews afterwards, she said she was trying to make a self-deprecating joke about her own white privilege. So she tweeted this, and she sat there waiting. Is anyone going to like it? Anyone going to retweet it? And of course, no one did, like normal. So she puts her phone on airplane mode, gets on the plane, goes to sleep, doesn't think any more of it. 11 hours later, she gets off the plane in South Africa, turns on her phone. The first message says this. It's from someone she hasn't spoken to for years since school. It says, Justine, I'm so sorry at what's happening to you. She's like, what? I'm in South Africa. I'm going to have a great Christmas. What's going on? The next message is from her best friend. It says, Justine, call me now. You are the number one talked about thing on Twitter. You need to phone me. She's like, what's going on? She opens Twitter. Suddenly, she wishes she hadn't. Over those 11 hours, here's what happened. One of those 170 Twitter followers sent that tweet to a journalist who retweeted it to 15,000 followers. From there, people started chipping in with their thoughts about this particular joke. Not many of them found it funny, as you would imagine. And some of them rightly, I think, called out the insensitivity of it and said, this is not a wise thing to say. This is not a good thing to say. Others took it a stage further. They started sending abusive tweets back to her. Her Twitter feed was filled with thousands, literally thousands of messages saying that they wish she would get attacked, raped, catch AIDS, and die. People took it another stage. They started Googling her. They found out where she worked. They tweeted to her employer and demanded, thousands of them demanded that they fire her right now, which they did publicly via Twitter. So 11 hours later, she gets off a plane, arrives in South Africa, turns on her phone. Her life has been dismantled. She is one of the most hated women in the world at that moment. She has lost her job, and people have even figured out what plane she was on, so they're there to meet her at the gate to take photos and live tweet her shame and embarrassment. Now, was she right to tweet what she did? I don't think so. I personally don't find it funny, and I definitely don't think it's wise. I think people were right to call out the insensitivity and the racially diversive nature of the tweet. But here's my question. Was the Twitter mob any better? I don't think so. John Ronson, a journalist, has written extensively on shame and on the impulse to shame others. You can read uh, brilliant articles in The Guardian and The New York Times and a book he's written on the subject and a TED Talk as well. He's um, written extensively and interviewed many people who've gone through things like Justine. And he says this, that the impulse to shame others is something that many of us, if not all of us, experience at some point. And although some people were no doubt genuinely upset and had a real uh, justifiable reason for explaining um, how they felt about it, for many, actually the shaming impulse is rooted to self-preservation. Because we want to tear others down to make ourselves feel better perhaps even to mask things that are going on in our lives and to divert attention from them. He suggests there are two types of people, those who value people over ideologies and those who value ideologies over people. And he says that things like Twitter feed that second type of person because Twitter is what he calls a mutual approval machine. It's a place where we surround ourselves by people who feel the same way we do and we love it when they approve us and say, yes, I like that, I retweet that, I endorse that. It makes us feel great. But as soon as there's someone within that machine who feels otherwise, we tear them down to make ourselves feel better. 
He says our desire to be seen to be compassionate can lead us to deeply uncompassionate acts. In an attempt to make the world a less cruel and insensitive place, we can end up making it more so. A couple of weeks after the Justine Sacco incident, John Ronson got in touch with the journalist who'd first hit retweet and had started the whole thing and said to him, how does it feel to have been the source of this massive story? You know what he said? He said, it felt delicious, but I'm sure she's fine. It felt delicious, but I'm sure she's fine. She was anything but fine. This lady has gone through things because of a moment of stupidity has gone through things that have ramifications to this day, affecting her health, her family, her mental health, her well-being. She's lost her job. I think there's something of that going on in the scribes in John 8. And when I read John 8, part of me thinks this feels like a very ancient, very distant story. Like it feels very different from our world, the death penalty, the law, the temple court. It, It feels very distant. The scenario doesn't feel very current. The spirit of it feels scarily current. This impulse to tear down others as a diversion for what is really going on in our hearts. They bring this woman before Jesus and they put him in a trap, humiliating her in the name of justice. Yes, she was wrong. Yes, she had done something that was against the law. But were they any better? In the name of justice, they stoop to an incredibly unjust, unjust level. They favor the ideology over the person. They effectively say, it feels delicious. I'm sure she'd be fine. Friedrich Nietzsche, writing, I think, probably about Twitter, says this. (laughs) Whoever fights monsters should see to it that in the process he does not become a monster. I actually have this saved as a draft in my Twitter drafts folder, (laughs) along with a whole load of tweets that I have written and then thought, I can't send that because this quote resounds in my head. I just won't send it. Whoever fights monsters must become Uh, must be careful that they do not become a monster. It's so easy in the name of justice, in the name of religion, to become deeply anti-just, anti-God, and unpleasant in the result. And I don't think this is an impulse that is confined to religion. I think many of us tear down others as a way of making ourselves feel better. In moments like this, public shaming on Twitter or in the temple courts, wherever it happens to be, we touch on something that is rooted in many of our hearts, a desire to make ourselves feel better by tearing down others. And often that comes from a place of knowing not everything is right in here, but if I can just divert other people's attention, maybe they won't notice my own brokenness. Our outward actions are often overcompensation for the internal brokenness. I've said it before, it's a famous quote, the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. And the scribes here, they passionately uphold the law, but at what cost? They think they will make the world a better place, but in the process they make it worse, more cruel, more insensitive. Now to be clear, the law was good. I'm not saying that laws or rules are bad. Actually, they are good things. And the reason that God gave such strong warnings like he does in in the Old Testament and the New Testament alike is because he cares about people and he cares about how we live. We were created to live life to the full and it pains him when we do things that bring death upon ourselves. Now, this is a bigger subject than we have to get into today, but I don't actually think that God wanted lots of people to be put to death. I don't think that because Jesus doesn't do it and Jesus is the perfect representation of God. I think the reason the death penalty is written there is to show the severity of what happens when we live in a way that almost brings death upon us rather than the life to the full that God created us for. And here, this woman is put in a place where she is embarrassed because people have loved the laws more than her. God loves people. 
And his laws are a way of pointing us to the life that will bring out the best in us, the life for which he created us. And the mistake the scribes make is to put the ideology above the person, to love the law rather than the person. And they seem to think that by by enforcing the laws, you can change the person's heart. That just does not work. The psychologist Richard Beck tells the story of a trip he took a couple of years ago where he traveled through some of the southern states of the USA and he was with 10 white preachers and 10 black preachers. And the purpose of their journey was to talk about race relations and development since the 1960s. He said that when they were traveling and talking, there was loads to celebrate. They talked about laws that had passed to, in theory, eradicate racism. On paper, it seemed like a lot had been done and that racism was on its way out. But of course, as they talked about the lived experience of being in those states, it became clear that there was a gap between the laws themselves and their outworking, what it actually feels like to live in those states. And the pastors told harrowing stories of things that they and others in their congregations had gone through. They talked in particular about the stop and search laws, which are often used against African Americans and people are terrified of. And they said, well, the problem isn't actually the law. There is nothing inherently racist in the law. The law is good. The problem is when the good law is put in the hands of people who have corrupt hearts, it becomes toxic. I think that is what is going on here in this passage Beck said he spent some time with Fred Gray, who was an incredible man, one of the most significant human rights um, lawyers and civil rights lawyers in American history. He spent time working with Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King on the Montgomery bus boycott and many other things. And Fred Gray, looking back on his life and all he had achieved, he uttered this sentence, which I find sobering. He says this, I was able to change the laws, but I couldn't change the hearts. I was able to change the laws, but I couldn't change the hearts. In a single sentence, I think Fred Gray has summed up what is wrong with bad, toxic religion. Religion that puts laws, ideologies above people. You can enforce those laws all you want, but it will not change the heart. The law is not the problem. The law points us towards the good life that God wants for us. The problem is when it is put in the hands of corrupt individuals, it becomes something monstrous. The law can't change hearts. The irony of this passage is the only hearts that seem to be getting changed are the hearts of the religious people, and they're not changed for the better. In enforcing the law, they become more and more toxic, more and more ungodly in the process. If you're here today as someone who has experienced bad religion, I am so sorry. I genuinely am. I hope that is not the case here. I know we will get it wrong at times. I, I even just reflect back on conversations I've had. I thought, man, I got that wrong. I did not represent God well there. I hope that will not be your experience here. But what I would hate, I genuinely hate, would be for you to experience bad religion and write off God. This woman encounters the scribes, and it's a horrible experience. She feels condemned. She feels dirty. She feels humiliated. But when she encounters God himself in the person of Jesus, it's entirely different. It's life-giving. It's beautiful. This is what happens. Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Jesus, faced with this controversial question, bends down and starts to write on the ground, which is an amazing tactic for buying time <laughs> like seriously next time one of you comes to me with a question I can't answer I'm gonna go great question 
This carpet is incredible. <laughs> what is going on here? I think partly it is that. He's buying time. But also I think there's something powerful about what he's doing in this moment. The scribes took the laws of Moses and they expanded them to huge uh, extents. In fact, maybe I could have the next slide up. I wasn't going to read this out, but it's quite funny. And I read it in the South and everyone laughed. So uh, next one. Oh, sorry. No, actually, go back. I should fill that in. I said it was a seven-day festival. It was a seven-day festival, the Feast of Tabernacles. But actually, this took place on the eighth day. And in Leviticus 23, it pointed out that the eighth day was like a bolt-on extra day of holiday that got attached to the seven-day festival. And the eighth day was to be treated like the Sabbath. But if you looked at the laws about the Sabbath, it was to be treated as a day of rest. And the scribes took this idea of the day of rest and they just expanded it and came up with massive lists of what you could and couldn't do on the day of rest. Here are some of them. Next slide. The forbidden actions are sowing, plowing, reaping, binding sheaves, threshing, winnowing, sorting, grinding, sifting, kneading, baking, shearing wool, whitening it, combing it, dyeing it, spinning, weaving, making two loops, weaving two threads, separating two threads, tying a knot, untying a knot, sewing two stitches, tearing for the purpose of sewing two stitches, writing two letters. Stop there. I mean, you could go on and on and on. Writing two letters. It was illegal, according to the scribes, to write two letters on the day of the Sabbath. So Jesus gets down and he starts writing on the ground. What's going on there? Well, actually, the scribe said, well, in not all circumstances is that illegal, because what if you were to write on something that is not permanent? For example, dust. So, next slide. They actually made it possible. They said, you are allowed to write in something that is not going to keep that writing. So you can write in the dust. In fact, weirdly, they said you can write in fruit juice. I don't even know how you do that. And you can write with your mouth or your elbows, which is, if I see any of you out there dipping your elbows in the orange juice, like that is wrong. If you take away two things from this talk, one, my Twitter handle, two, don't dip your elbows in the orange juice. It's really weird. But as Jesus gets down on the floor, I think he's saying, look, I know the law. And I know your interpretation of the law inside and out. You are not dealing with an amateur hack here. You are dealing with someone who knows and upholds the law. I think it's a powerful action. We don't actually know what Jesus wrote on the floor. And commentators have speculated for years. I think actually the most plausible and probably the most popular interpretation is that he was writing or at least alluding to a verse in Jeremiah chapter 17, which said this, those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. I think that is probably what he was either writing or, or alluding to. The reason I think that is because actually the whole of Jeremiah 17 really speaks to this situation. Read them side by side. It's powerful. Think back one chapter, John 7. Jesus stands up at the feast. What does he say? All who are thirsty, come to me. Get the streams of living water. What do they do? They say, no, we're going to arrest him. They literally forsake God and cut themselves off from the streams of living water. And Jesus writes in the dust. He says, this is what is happening to you. You are becoming temporary. You're going to be blown away because you have rejected me, the stream of living water. The irony is that by pursuing a religiously pure life, they get exactly the opposite. They miss out on the living water, the vibrant spiritual life that David spoke about last week from John 4 that Jesus came to offer. And Jesus writes on the dust, and as they see it, it's like it starts to sink in. They realize Jesus is talking about them. And Jesus says this, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to cast the first stone. And this is a brilliant response. Because actually the very verses that they are quoting require that the person who throws the first stone must be the witness to the crime. So in coming to Jesus and saying, go on, you stone him, they are actually being very selective with the law. So think about Jesus' whole action. He is writing on the ground and saying, 
I know the law. And I know your interpretation of the law. I know it better than even you do. And I can see right now that you are being selective in the law. And he throws it back into their court. He says, any one of you who is without sin, as the law requires, go on, throw the first stone. But be careful, because if you throw a stone, you better make sure there's nothing in your heart that requires a stone to be thrown at you. And the people look at that, the dust and the saying and the law, and they're like, man, it's like a mirror reflecting back what's in their hearts, and they don't like it, and they can't do it. And so they melt away, all the accusers, until the only people left are Jesus and this woman, the adulteress and the stream of living water. The church father Augustine says the two were left alone, misery and mercy. I love that. This woman who has been shamed, humiliated and abused by those who claim to represent God now finds herself face to face with God, with the embodiment of mercy. I can't imagine what was going on in her mind at this point. Probably a mixture of confusion, relief, and fear. Like, what's going to happen next? Is Jesus going to pick up a stone? She's standing there, not sure what's going to happen. Jesus straightens up and asks her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, go now and leave your life of sin. And in a moment, everything is turned around. She literally gets new life. That moment where she could have faced death, it's gone. She's set free. Everything changed. She encounters the scribes. She feels awful, condemned. She meets Jesus. She feels free, made alive again. And in this moment, I think we learn two powerful things about Jesus. And the first is that Jesus sees the heart. He knows the heart. He knows what's going on here. Jesus is not a fool. I think he knows that this woman probably is guilty. Why? Because at the end of the passage, he says, go and don't do it again. I think Jesus knows. But he can also see beyond the external actions to what is going on in the heart. And if it was Jeremiah 17 that Jesus was alluding to, which I think it probably was, that's doubly, triply powerful, because actually Jeremiah 17 talks about this very thing. It says this, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? The implicit answer is no one. No one can understand it. But I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. The heart is deceitful. There is only one who can understand it, the Lord, Jesus Christ himself. Jesus can see the heart. And he can see the heart of both the woman and the scribes. He sees beyond the actions, the religious and the irreligious, and sees what's going on inside. He sees beneath the religious activity of the scribes and can see the corruption and hypocrisy in their hearts. And in the same way, he can see beneath the law-breaking actions of the woman and see the vulnerability, the hurt, the need, the pain, the fear in her heart. And he turns the whole mess of a situation on its head. Jeremiah 17 says, You are my refuge in the day of disaster. Let my persecutors be put to shame, but keep me from shame. Let them be terrified, but keep me from terror. Bring on them the day of disaster. And that's exactly what Jesus does. On this woman's worst day of her life, when she's at her absolute weakest and lowest, what does he do? He shames her shamers and removes her shame. He takes away her fear and puts the fear of God into the representatives of God, the so-called representatives of God. He takes her day of destruction and makes it their day of disaster. To the scribes, it's like he says, you are in danger of missing out on the very thing you claim to have access to, streams of living water. Don't miss out on it. To the woman and to all of us, he says, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink. The only qualification you need is your thirst, nothing more. 
Come to me and drink streams of living water. Jesus knows the heart, which means he knows everything about us. He knows everything I do, everything I think, everything I say. He knows my motives often better than even I do. And in one sense, that's terrifying. Because there is stuff in here and in here that I am glad that none of you get to see. And you're probably glad you don't get to see either. And part of me thinks, I don't want anyone. I don't want God seeing that. Jesus sees it. But he also loves me, despite what is in here and in here. He sees our hearts and he loves us. And he says to us, like he says to this woman, neither do I condemn you. John 3. Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. He sees our hearts, he loves us, and he offers us living water. Now, I don't want you to mishear me or mishear this passage and think that Jesus doesn't care how we live. That's not what I'm saying at all. I think God cares deeply about the way that we live. I think Jesus cares about the law. He said in Matthew 5, he didn't come to overturn it, but to fulfill it. I think actually Jesus understands and appreciates and upholds the law more than the scribes do. Because he doesn't just look at the, the letters of the law, but the spirit of the law. What it was intended to do, point us towards life to the full. I think Jesus cares about the way we live. He isn't saying that we should just go and do whatever we like. He says, go and leave your life of sin. There's something better for you. Look where this has got you. Follow me, you'll get somewhere far greater. He empowers this woman to live a far, far better life. He doesn't expect her to experience mercy and then just go on doing the same thing. Mercy is meant to transform us. It is meant to direct us towards life to the full, which raises the question, if the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart and laws do not change hearts, what can change hearts? Well, Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? There is one person who can understand it, and I think that very same person can also cure it. Jesus not only sees our hearts, he heals our hearts. Jeremiah said, heal me, Lord, and I will be healed. Save me, and I will be saved. And God replied this, I will give them a new heart to know me. The days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors and all the laws that came with it, which they broke. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Neither do I condemn you. God's answer to the problem of the human heart is not more and more laws that stand like an external judge and go, you got that wrong again and again and again. Rather, God heals our hearts by giving us a new heart that can know him, by filling us with the streams of living water of his Holy Spirit by writing the way to eternal life, the laws on our hearts, not as an external judge, but an internal compass. He comes and dwells within us. He forgives us for our failings and he empowers us to live new lives, which is why when Jesus says to the woman, go and sin no more, he's not saying go out and do the impossible. He's saying, I am now through this encounter empowering you to live a better life, a life to the full. Jesus encounters her and changes everything. When she met the bad religion, it just made her feel awful. She met Jesus, it made her feel alive and loved, perhaps for the first time. Who knows? Maybe the band can come back up. I don't know when you hear this story how you think it connects with you. Maybe you've thought this is an unusual story and an unusual sermon, I don't know. But maybe, just maybe, as you've heard me reflect on it, you've identified with little bits about it. As I prepared this sermon, there'd been moments where I thought, man, I am more like a scribe than I thought. Man, I'm more like that woman than I ever thought. 
man, I'm not enough like Jesus. <laughs> Where do you identify with this story? Perhaps there are some of us here today who, if we were completely honest, would say, yeah, I think there's a bit of the scribe going on in my heart. Maybe you are aware of areas where you tend to think that Christianity is about rules rather than relationship. Maybe you're aware of things you've said, attitudes you hold, that actually mean you come across as condemning or judgmental. Less like Jesus, more like the scribes. If so, the appeal to you is this, don't miss out on the streams of living water. I don't think when Jesus wrote in the dust, he was saying, that's it, there's no way back for you. I think he was saying, you are in danger of missing out, but there's so much for you. Come to me, all who are thirsty, scribes included, and drink. If you know today that you have maybe got a view of Christianity that is about rules rather than relationship, where you come across like that to others, or you're maybe using external religious action as a way of covering up for brokenness that is internal to you, come to Jesus. Ask him to heal your heart and fill you with living water today. Or it may be that you identify more with the woman. You're aware of brokenness within you. Things you just think, I so hope God doesn't know that about me, because if he did, he couldn't love me. He knows. And he says over you today, neither do I condemn you. And my prayer is that you have the courage to believe that today, that you come to him, that you experience the streams of living water, the Holy Spirit dwelling within you, washing you clean and making you new. And if you have had a bad experience of Christianity, and you're at the point of just thinking, I don't think that I could believe in a God who allows those things to happen. Please don't make the mistake today of mistaking bad religion for God. Come, experience an encounter with Jesus. If we can talk to you, answer questions, pray with you, so that you experience the streams of living water this morning, we would love to do that. In fact, I'd love to pray for us now, if that's all right. So why don't we stand? We're going to sing a song of worship that reflects on who God is and what he has done for us. But I'd just like to offer a quick prayer. And then if you would like prayer specifically for something in your heart, in your life, then we will have a prayer team at the end who would love to pray with you. Just come forward and speak to them. You can be honest with them. They're not going to tell everyone. They're not going to shame you. They're not going to embarrass you. They just want to stand with you and pray that God would fill you afresh with streams of living water. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, that you know us. You know us more intimately than we even know ourselves. Thank you that you uniquely see our hearts. And yet you love us. Thank you that you did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to rescue it, to save it. You said, I come to give you life and life to the full. I want to pray that today we would have the courage to trust and believe that promise, that offer. Pray for those of us who identify with the scribes, that you would come and soften and heal our hearts. For we have attitudes that are maybe not representative of how you truly feel. I pray that you would make us more like you. I pray that where sometimes we just use external religious activity to cover what's going on in our hearts, I pray that we would be honest and authentic have the courage to confess? And would you fill us with genuine living water? Pray for those who feel ashamed, broken, vulnerable today. I want to pray for the courage to believe your promise, neither do I condemn you. I want to pray that today people would encounter you, Jesus, and know you setting them free. I want to pray for all of us that you would fill us afresh right now 
with your Holy Spirit, with the streams of living water, that they will bubble up to eternal life. Thank you for your presence, Holy Spirit. Just remain on us, I pray, as we worship. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or for further podcasts and downloads, please visit ChristChurchLondon.org.